And so I told this guy, well, you know, if I can't buy that fire axe from you, I don't want this rope or these zip ties either. And you can bet I'm going to put these tarps back too. So he kicked me out and I had to come up with like, you know, a different, oh, hey, sorry, I've got to call you back. Uh, I didn't hear you there. I guess people just don't, uh, you know, knock anymore or whatever the podcast equivalent is. Press play, I guess. Welcome back to Legends Lore and Larceny. I'm your host who definitely isn't planning an axe murder, Charlie Stone, and I'm thrilled to have you back with me for another episode. Disregard that part at the beginning. That was that was fake. That was nothing to worry about. <clears throat> Thanks to everyone who listened to and enjoyed the last two episodes about the Heaven's Gate UFO cult. That whole thing was a bit of a doozy, huh? If you thought that one was weird, just wait a few minutes. It'll get weirder. Uh, If you've listened to season one, you have listened to the first Unsolved Mysteries episode about the uh, ever-mysterious Dyatlov Pass incident and the just-as-mysterious real-life supervillain D.B. Cooper. Uh, This episode is Unsolved Mysteries 2, and this is going to be a decidedly more uh, murdery one uh, today we'll be covering the elusive serial killer, the Axeman of New Orleans, and the skin-crawling Hinterkaifeck murders. Uh, these are going to be grisly, bloody, and in other words, uh, explicit. Uh, there's going to be an explicit content warning on this one. Uh, there will be discussions of murder, assault, and um, incest a little bit. So uh, if any of that is too much for you, if any of that uh, triggers feelings in you that um, you don't like, then this episode may not be for you. I'm not going to hit the incest real heavy. Um, It's going to be mentioned a few times, um, but I'm not going to go into explicit detail. So um, if you can't handle any of that stuff, we'll catch you next time. Um, I'm not going to do a what do I know this week since there are going to be uh, two stories and I already know a good bit about them. I'm not saying that I know everything. I definitely don't know everything, but uh, it's just not enough for a what do I know and I would just be summarizing the stories before I tell them to you, which doesn't really make any sense. Uh, You probably don't know too much about these things yourself. Uh, unless you are very into researching, you know, weird and um, inappropriate things like I am. Um, But you're going to know more by the end. I promise. That's what the show is about. Learning and growing together. Um, But it's not anything useful. Uh, If you have a trivia game or you like to play trivia murder party on Jackbox, uh, this might help you. Honestly. Uh, let's talk briefly about something I was wondering, uh, about before starting this episode. Where did the phrase axe murderer come from? I've heard that a lot. There's that Mike Myers movie, I Married an Axe Murderer and stuff. Um, it seems like a very popular genre of murder, especially from the early 20th century. Uh, according to johnmjennings.com, um, which I believe is a personal blog of some sort. Uh, The phrase probably comes from a whole lot of axe murders perpetrated in the early 20th century, Uh, such as the cases we're covering today, but, you know, there are a lot of others, including the Velisca axe murders, which I could have um, included in this episode, but honestly, I didn't remember them. They might be in another Unsolved Mysteries. I think that would be neat. An axe shows a crime of passion. If you wanted to murder someone efficiently, a gun, you know, would do the trick, but using an axe or other large weapon with a blunt element to it shows definite emotion to the crime. Think about it. Would you rather just point and click, or would you rather swing a 10 to 12 pound axe, you know, a bunch of times? If you were really upset with this person, working out some frustration would probably feel very good. Of course, I'm not speaking from experience, I'm just saying. If I'm arrested for murder, it'll probably be because I have, you know, killed a home intruder with an axe. Uh, And I think that's a very, uh, (laughs) that phrase, the male urge to blank, has been memed a lot. 
But I think the male urge to defend your home from an intruder with something that is not a gun is pretty strong. Um, and honestly, honestly, I've fantasized that about, uh, about that a lot. Like somebody coming into my house to try and steal things and I'm just waiting there behind the door and I'm like, Oh, you have made a mistake. And then I'm arrested, uh, for way, way too much murder. I think, um, of course I would never murder an innocent person. I'm just saying if someone broke into my home looking to do me harm or steal things from me. Okay. Anyway, uh, of course. So, uh, <laughs> the ax man of new Orleans will start in new Orleans, right? Uh, during the year 1918, uh, just a little bit of a, a brief history lesson. What was going on during 1918? Well, it was mostly World War One, which was a really big deal at the time. I'll probably do an episode on Big One and Two at some point because I love reading and learning about these massive conflicts that were essentially, you know, the entire world fighting each other or Germany most of the time. You think Germany would have learned after the first time uh, because they got absolutely trounced, but they didn't. They didn't learn. They came back worse than ever. Um, and then they got beaten down again. I hope they don't try that again. Uh, we're not here to talk about that, though, although there is some talk about uh, World War II and specifically Germans in this episode. <clears throat> um, we're here to talk about New Orleans. During 1918, New Orleans was hit with a terrible outbreak of influenza, which was brought from Panama... Uh, with some bananas. By 1919, it is estimated that around 3,500 people had died from influenza or Spanish flu, uh, which was a pretty alarming number. According to influenzaarchive.org, only Philadelphia and Pittsburgh had higher mortality rates, so New Orleans was having a tough time already. The bananas and flu arrived in September, but there was already a killer in New Orleans causing havoc at this point. Well, actually, I should say killer or killers. We don't know for sure. Uh, the Axeman killings are thought to have started in May of 1918, although there are some theorists who think he may have begun his life of crime years before he rose to infamy. Uh, Miriam Davis, author of The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, uh, which I relied on pretty heavily. She's given several interviews uh, that I found online um, kind of talking about her book and The Axeman uh, more broadly. Um, anyway, she posts, posits, sorry, that a string of assaults in 1910 were committed by the same person who had become the dreaded Axeman of New Orleans. Uh, to give her credit, I do think the crimes are reminiscent of The Axeman, so I'll include them in the timeline here. I'm just not going to count them in the final um, kill count. Uh, this whole thing might have started during the early hours of August 13th, 1910. Harriet Crutey, Harriet Crutey, I think, woke up at around 3 a.m. to find the shape of a man standing over her bed holding what might have been a meat cleaver. Uh, this would make sense as Harriet and her husband, August, lived above and ran a grocery store where they probably, you know, cut their own meat. Uh, Harriet tried to scream for her husband, uh, but when she looked over at him in the bed, she saw that whoever was threatening her now had hurt August badly. Uh, he had sustained, sustained several injuries to the face and body, most likely from the cleaver. Uh, the man above the bed asked where the couple kept their money and threatened to kill Harriet if she did not comply. Uh, when she told him, he took the money, $8, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but according to several monetary inflation sites, uh, $8 in 1910 will get you about 260 today, uh, which is crazy that that much inflation has happened. Um, and also, he stole the couple's pet mockingbird. Okay. Uh, I don't know if there were a lot of mockingbird-related crimes back in the day. I, I think that's, uh, that was rare even for the day. Uh, August was rushed to a nearby hospital where he made a full recovery, but I'm sure, uh, that the night stayed with Harriet and August for the rest of their lives. 
uh, the cleaver, as this mysterious figure would come to be called, would strike twice more. Uh, once, on September 20th, when he would attack Conchetta and Joseph Rizzetto in their home with a meat axe, which is basically a nasty-looking cleaver. Uh, after attacking the sleeping couple, the attacker left without stealing anything, including $23 in a cash register. He would have found if he'd just looked around a little bit. Apparently, this couple also ran a store of some kind. Uh, they both made recoveries, although Conchetta had injuries to her face for the rest of her life, leaving her partially blind. Uh, the last time the cleaver would attack was sometime in the summer of 1911, uh, when he would kill for the first time that we know of. Uh, Mary Davy was sleeping peacefully after a long day of being pregnant and running a shop. Uh, she was awoken by a sound, which turned out to be, you guessed it, a dude in her room with a weapon, probably a cleaver. When she turned to her husband, he was in bad shape, having been cleaved, or cloven, clove, cleave, cleaven. Uh, when the man was standing over her bed, asked Mary where the money was, she wasn't able to answer because she was freaking out. So the man hit her in the head with something, maybe a mug, and then left without stealing anything, even though he went through their stuff. Uh, after the initial attack, Joseph was rushed to the hospital, but unlike August Crutey, he was too badly injured and died soon after arriving. Mary and her unborn child survived, but life would never be the same for them. So let's look at these crimes. All of the couples who were attacked were small business owners and all ostensibly uh, Italian immigrants. I don't just say this because of their names, but because we know that all of the confirmed Axeman victims were Italian immigrants, too. Um, well, I should say most. There were some things that didn't fit the pattern, but I'll get into that uh, in a minute. Most of them were Italian immigrants who, earned, who um, owned grocery stores. Uh, so there might have been connection. In all of the Cleaver attacks, the man responsible entered the house quietly either removing panels from back doors or entering through unlatched windows. And this might have continued in 1912 with the Mary of, with the murder, <laughs> with the Mary of murder, uh, with the murder of Mary Siambra. Uh, I just, I can't control my notes. Um, <clears throat> this murder was unlike the others, which would be done uh, with a cleaver or an axe, because Mary Siambra was shot. I'll explain why I think that Mary Siambra might have been killed by the Axeman, but it's definitely not a solid fact. Uh, on the night of May 15th, 1912, Tony Siambra was shot and wounded while his wife was shot and killed. Uh, some people believe that this was the Axeman trying something different, but uh, other people believe that this was a mafia hit uh, and that Mary's death was accidental. Uh, the theory is that Tony was somehow involved in organized crime or was the target of gang violence, but his wife was, you know, the ultimate victim. Uh, the main Axeman killings uh, began in 1918 on the night of May 22nd, or the early morning hours of May 23rd. Uh, Joseph and Catherine Maggio were sleeping peacefully until someone appeared in their house. A door panel had been found missing, so it was suspected that the killer had chiseled or otherwise removed uh, the panel from the door, and someone unlocked the door from the missing panel, or just squeezed through. Uh, the Maggios were found by Joseph's brothers, Jake and Andrew, the next morning, who were shocked by what they saw. Joseph and Catherine were in their bed, and blood was everywhere. Upon closer inspection, their throats had been cut with a straight razor, which was found outside the building the next day, and then they had both been hit several times in the head with an axe. Uh, Catherine's throat was so deeply slashed that um, several sites quote that she had almost been decapitated. Uh, the axe they'd been struck with was theirs, which the killer had taken from their backyard and then left in their bathtub after his grisly work was done. Uh, bloody clothes were found outside the house, which, which suggested the killer changed before fleeing, which helped him blend in. 
Uh, Andrew, who had found his brother and sister-in-law dead, was initially suspected but was released due to lack of evidence. If the story I found is to be believed, and it may not be, apparently the straight razor used to cut the Maggio's throats belonged to Andrew, who was a barber. Uh, According to one of his employees, Andrew had brought the straight razor home to have it honed. Uh, Also, Andrew lived in an adjoining apartment with Joseph and Catherine, so he would have had easy access. Andrew's excuse for not hearing the incredible violence next door was that he had gotten pretty wasted the night before, so he was, you know, very soundly asleep. Uh, I think that Andrew had some pretty poor excuses, and he may have done it, but the police let him go anyway. I'll, I'll talk about more suspects at the end. I just wanted to throw Andrew in here um, to show, you know, it might have been someone related. Uh, something that ties this murder to Mary Siambra, who I mentioned earlier, the woman who was shot, was a message written on the night of the Maggio murders on the pavement near the house slash business uh, of the Maggios, which read, quote, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Uh, this is sort of circumstantial, but some people called Mrs. Siambra Mrs. Tony since her husband's name was Tony. I guess that could be the same guy, but like I said, it's kind of a stretch. Also, multiple sources I found had different names for the Siambras, uh, and one claimed that both Tony and Mary were killed with an axe, but uh, more of them said that Mary was shot. Um, I think it's a case of happening a long time ago when keeping records was different, and many things may have been lost to time. So, like in most episodes, I'll I'll let you know that some of the info I found may not line up exactly with something you know about it, so I apologize. After all, it has been more than 100 years. Uh, The next attacks that may have been the Axeman's work happened a month later on June 27th. Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Um, These two also lived in a grocery store owned by Bessemer, but neither of them were Italian uh, that I know of. So this attack broke previously established patterns. Uh, Bessemer was hit in the temple with a blunt object and knocked out, and Lowe was hit behind the ear. Um, An axe was found in the bathroom, so it was generally assumed that this was the weapon used. I mean, it was covered in blood and stuff. Uh, In the morning, a delivery man found Bessemer and Lowe in a pool of their own blood, uh, but alive, and was fast enough to call the authorities. Um, So both victims survived, although Lowe would suffer from paralysis. Uh, Lowe was apparently awake and conscious enough to identify her attacker as a dark-skinned, heavyset man with a hat. Uh, So people talked to a black employee of Bessemer's Grocery, Louis Ubicon. Louis's story didn't line up with witness statements, so they arrested him. But again, Ubicon was let go because of lack of evidence. I don't think Ubicon did it, personally, because uh, Lowe went on to change her story several times. Uh, Two months after the initial attack, Lowe would undergo surgery to fix her facial paralysis uh, due to being struck in the head and would uh, ultimately die from complications in surgery. Uh, One of the last things she would ever say was that Bessemer was her attacker. Um, Suspicion was already kind of directed at Bessemer because he was German. Like I said, World War I was going on at this point, and people were wary of German immigrants, as they might be spies for the Kaiser. Uh, It was discovered that Bessemer had several notes hidden in his home uh, in different languages, including Yiddish and Russian, so he was arrested not only on suspicion for uh, being Lowe's attacker, but also for espionage. Uh, Bessemer was, was found not guilty several months later and released, but was he innocent of Lowe's assault? Lowe was his mistress. Uh, Maybe she found some stuff she wasn't supposed to find, and Bessemer took advantage of the recent axe attacks to cover his tracks. Holy moly, I didn't even mean to do it. Axe attacks to cover his tracks. Uh, Bars. Uh, He may have harmed himself and Lowe to throw off suspicion, but I don't think we'll ever know for sure. Also, isn't it really hard to hit yourself with an axe? 
I mean, the mental fortitude you would have to have to hit yourself in the noggin with a wood axe. I don't know if I could do it. Uh, the axe man may have waited a little over a month before his next attack, which was on the evening of August 5th. Mother of four, Anna Schneider, was found by her husband, beaten and bloody, but alive. The other amazing part, Anna was eight months pregnant with another child, who she would give birth to soon after the attack. A healthy baby girl. Uh, this one had a happy ending, but it didn't follow any of the established patterns either. I don't think Anna was Italian, uh, she didn't own or work at an Italian-owned grocery store, and the weapon she was assaulted with was a lamp from a nearby table, which left her with a gash over her forehead. Uh, money was stolen from the home, which the Axeman hadn't really cared about before. Um, the thing linking this to the Axeman was an axe from the Schneider home had been taken during the assault, and that could just be a random robbery. Honestly, somebody looking to cash in on the Axeman um, fever as it were. Uh, five days later, the axe man would strike again. Joe Romano was a barber, not a grocer, but his family did own a small grocery store attached to his house, and he was also Italian. Uh, when Pauline and Mary Bruno, Joe's nieces, heard a commotion from their uncle's room, they rushed to investigate. When they opened the door to Joe's room, they found him with an injury to his head. They also saw someone running from the scene of the crime, who they described as a dark-skinned, heavy-set man uh, wearing a slouched hat. Uh, I don't know what a slouched hat is. I'm assuming uh, that a lot of people had those back then because it was probably some stupid piece of fashion. Uh, Joe would survive the initial attack, but would succumb to his injuries two days later. That's another victim taken by who we think is the Axeman. Uh, police were getting frustrated because they saw a connection between these attacks, but they had no solid leads. It seemed like this guy would just appear and disappear into thin air. It was almost as if there was something supernatural about the Axeman, which would play right into his plans. After Joe's murder, paranoia, paranoia rose to an incredible level. Sightings and reports of men with axes trying to break into houses skyrocketed. Either men hoping to take advantage of this craze were actually in the streets after dark, or people were jumping in shadows. At this point, several members of the New Orleans police put together the attacks during 1911 by the Cleaver and the ones happening at the time, but this was never made official. Uh, a good chunk of time elapsed between Joe Romano's murder and the next Axeman attack. This assault took place on the night of March 10th, 1919, seven months after the last attack. This next one would be, in my opinion, one of the worst. The Cordemelia family consisted of Charles, his wife, Rosie, and their infant daughter, Mary. They lived in Gretna, Louisiana, which is near New Orleans and is part of the same metropolitan area, but it's a different city. On the evening of March 10th, Orlando Giordano, an across-the-street neighbor to the Cordemelia family, heard screaming from the family's house and ran over to investigate. Uh, Giordano found Rosie standing in her doorway, holding her two-year-old daughter in her arms. Rosie was covered in blood, and Charles was lying in a large puddle of his own blood. Two-year-old Mary had been struck once in the back of the neck, killing her instantly. Both Rosie and Charles were taken to the hospital where they would make full recovers physically, but mentally, you know, that had to stay with them forever. Why would the Axeman kill a kid? What is that kid going to do? Uh, that's, it's just frustrating. Why doesn't he just stick to his pattern? Uh, when Rosie was well enough to talk to the police, she claimed that Orlando and his son, Frank, had been her family's attackers, although there were some problems with this claim. First, the attacker had removed a panel from the back door to gain entry, like several of the other crime scenes had shown. The weapon had been an axe, which was found in the backyard, covered in blood. The first problem was that Irlando was well into his 60s, almost 70s. Uh, there was reasonable doubt about his ability to hit anyone with an axe. Uh, secondly, Frank was a big fella, at least over feet tall, uh, six feet tall, uh, and 200 or more pounds, and there was no way he could have fit through the missing panel in the door. Apparently, the police didn't care about these facts because they arrested the Giordanos, sentencing Irlando for life, uh, and 
Frank to hang until dead. Uh, A year after the arrests had been made, Rosie admitted that she had falsely accused the Giordanos. Charles knew this and divorced Rosie after the Giordanos' trial uh, after trying to convince her to recant. This meant that the Axeman still eluded justice. Uh, Three days after attacking the Cordemilias, the Axeman did something crazy. He wrote to a local New Orleans paper, the Times-Picayune, with a completely unhinged letter, like so many cocky serial killers have in the past, uh, such as notable unidentified serial killers, Jack the Ripper, and the Zodiac Killer. Here is what he wrote. Hey, my dear, it's Dean Martin. They're coming to deal with you. And there's Jimmy behind me, Even the other all right. I'm not here, Uh, I'm not going to read the whole letter like that. That would be insane if I did. Um, (laughs) I would be more insane than the Axeman, I think. Um, In case you're wondering what that was, I was trying to do a a Cajun dialect, accent, whatever, and I'm pretty sure that I failed spectacularly. I'm just going to leave it in there. I think that'll be fun. Uh, If you don't like it, well, that, that sucks. Sorry. Okay, starting over. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I'm not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I'm what you Orleanians call, and your foolish police call, the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murder, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils and the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whom whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time. I've just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of you people who do not jazz it on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. Now, there's some weird stuff in there. Uh, I think, most notably, he uses the phrase jazzet, um, which I think makes him a criminal. I think uh, if you say jazz it unironically, I think you should go to jail. But also, he's talking about how he's a demon from hell, um, how he knows the angel of death, and how he could kill uh, millions of people in a single night. Although, his success rate so far hasn't been that great. He's killed a few people, sure, but he has injured way more. And I think that's pretty hard with a giant axe. I think... You know, if you really wanted to kill somebody, you could do it. I mean, he's been run off a couple times, but honestly, I don't think he's that good. I think he's boasting, if this even was the Axeman. 
so as we heard there, the Axeman was a big fan of jazz and wanted the people of New Orleans to jazz it on the night of March 19th. Apparently, everyone was afraid enough of the Axeman to bend to his demands. Uh, throughout the night, jazz was heard from houses all over New Orleans, but no one died of axe wounds that night. It seems that the Axeman was insane, but, you know, true to his word. Uh, did the Axeman even write this letter? Some people don't think he did. There are countless theories, but I'll talk about my favorite. Uh, during the Axeman killings, a musician named John Joseph John Davila wrote a jazz piece called The Mysterious Axeman Jazzed. I'll start over. The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. Subtitle, Don't Hurt Me, Papa. I don't know what that means, uh, but I've listened to it, and I'm not a huge fan of jazz, uh, so it didn't really stick out to me that much. But at the time, people loved it. Apparently, they loved Don't Hurt Me, Papa. <sighs> what does that even mean? Okay. Um, it made Davila a lot of cash, and some theorists claim Davila wrote the letter so that people would buy or promote his music. I like to think that it was actually the Axeman, because that seems like the actions of a true madman but reality is often often stranger than fiction also why is this guy talking in the the king james thee and thou and shalt get with the times man it's 1919 this temporary cessation of the axeman's murders didn't mean he was done for good he did however enter another period of hibernation lasting about six months august 10th 1919 saw steve Boca, an italian grocer sleeping peacefully that was until someone chiseled the panel out of his door and entered his home. He woke to a sound and was hit in the head with the business end of an axe. He saw a shadowy figure swing the axe then run away. Steve somehow made it out of his home into the street where he figured out uh, that his head had been split open. His neighbor noticed the commotion, called the police, and Steve was taken to the hospital where he recovered physically. Like a lot of these people, but mentally, however... Steve couldn't remember much about the assault as the splitting of his head caused him some memory loss and other trauma. Go figure. Uh, on September 3rd, the Axeman broke into the apartment of Sarah Lawman through a window. After some time not seeing Sarah, some concerned friends broke into Sarah's apartment after she did not answer the door. They found 19-year-old Sarah on her bed with serious head injuries and several missing teeth. Sarah was able to recover from her injuries, but she didn't remember anything about the attack, like uh, Steve Booker. And of course, a uh, bloody axe was found in the complex's front yard. But I don't know if this is the axe man, you know, because she's not, I don't think she's an Italian grocer. <clears throat> uh, the axe man had one more theorized attack on October 27th, 1919. Mike Pepitone's wife was sleeping in another room, probably taking care of her children. She awoke to a strange noise from her husband's room. When she investigated, she saw a man wielding an axe and then fleeing the scene. Mrs. Pepitone turned her attention to her husband, who was lying in the bed. His head had been, quite frankly, destroyed with the axe, and blood was scattered all around the room, uh, covering everything. Mike Pepitone was pronounced dead on the scene, bringing the Axeman's estimated murder count to five, unless you count the delayed death of Harriet Lowe during her surgery to fix the paralysis she was inflicted with by the Axeman. Uh, we don't know where the Axeman went, or if he ever really stopped killing, but authorities at the time didn't find any more Axeman-related crimes in New Orleans. Uh, there were probably copycat killings after the initial killer was done, but for all we know, the mysterious Axeman was done in New Orleans. Uh, now, like a lot of unsolved killings, there are several suspects, but this spree is unique. There, were, well, there was a sizable mafia presence in New Orleans during this point in time because of the large number of Sicilian immigrants in the community. Could these murders have been organized crime-related? Maybe, but I doubt mobsters would use axes. Uh, they seem more like the gun-toting types. Uh, this could have all been done by s different people as well. Sure, several people described the Axeman as heavyset and dark-skinned, but come on, this was New Orleans. There had to have been several hundred men who matched that description. And that doesn't even count those times when no one was able to describe their attacker, 
like Sarah Lahman and Steve Boca. Some theorists claim that the Axeman was actually, you know, three or more people. Now, I wouldn't leave you hanging without giving you one actual suspect. People who know more about this stuff than I do, like a man named Joseph Monfrey, uh, or Momfrey, or Mumfrey, although he was also called a lot of other names, like I just said, because of his double life. Uh, by day, Joseph Mumfrey was a pharmacist, but by night, he worked for the mafia, carrying out hits. Joseph did a lot of jail time for his crimes, which line up eerily with the months the Axeman went into hibernation. Uh, Joseph had previous association with some of the victims of the Axeman, uh, most notably Peter Pepitone, Mike Pepitone's brother. Uh, some years after the Axeman killings, Joseph Pepitone was found dead in California. A woman named Esther Albano shot him multiple times in the chest and then dropped a major bombshell. Uh, she claimed to police that she was Mike Pepitone's widow. What a John Wick move. Now, of course, this could be an urban legend. Uh, true crime writers sometimes invent new and interesting turns to a story, but I'd like to believe that one of the victim's widows was able to hunt down and kill her husband's killer. Joseph Mumfrey never confessed to the Axeman killing, so we'll never know for sure if it was him, but we do know that a dangerous mafioso was taken off the board. Uh, the Axeman has left his mark on popular culture since his rampage back in the early 20th century. Uh, he's been mentioned in various supernatural materials based in New Orleans, such as the Vampire Diaries and American Horror Story Coven, which is one of my favorite seasons, even though, you know, the magic and ghost rules don't really make a whole lot of sense uh, through most of it. Uh, and of course, you've got the mysterious Axeman's jazz. He's been the subject of several books. He's been in the subject of several podcasts like this one. Um, and he, I think that unsolved, mysterious serial killers are more fascinating than real life, you know, uh, tangible people. Kind of like how the Zodiac and Jack the Ripper have become like these media sensations. I think the Axeman falls into that category of was it a ghost? Was it, you know, the prince, which is an actual Jack the Ripper theory. Uh, I may do an episode on him later um, and do what research I can. Um, but yeah, that's that's about it for the Axeman. Uh, if you thought this story was bizarre, get ready for something even more creepy and unexplainable, in my opinion. It's another Axe-adjacent unsolved mystery, the Hinterkaifeck murders. Uh, if you've never heard of this creepy crime, I don't blame you. Uh, the story comes from 1920s Germany, and there was, you know, some other stuff happening there at this point, which sort of takes precedent. It's weird how both of these stories have German aspects. I, I honestly didn't notice that before choosing these cases. Uh, the Gruber family lived at their farm called Hinterkaifeck. The whole gang was 63-year-old Andreas Gruber, his wife, 72-year-old Kazilia, their adult daughter, Victoria Gabriel, or Gabriel, and her children, six-year-old Kazelia, Kazelia the Younger, and two-year-old Joseph. Joseph? Jo <clears throat> Doesn't matter. Uh, Maria Baumgartner, the 44-year-old live-in maid, was also on the farm during the darkest days of the Gruber family's life. Let's talk about where the farm was. The town of Kaifeck, Germany, is about 40-ish miles from Munich. The farm was located behind the town, and I guess that the German uh, word for behind is hinter, Therefore, Hinterkaifeck. The Grubers didn't have many close neighbors, but the Schlittenbauers were the closest farm to theirs. Uh, we'll talk more about them soon. Uh, and they were also surrounded by dense forest, which comes into the story later as well. Uh, also, uh, the Grubers didn't uh, socialize that much with people in town. Andreas was a very standoffish, um, miserly uh, kind of just a bad dude, and we'll talk about that later as well. Uh, strange events began occurring six months before the family's uh, untimely demise. The previous live-in maid, who I could not find a name for, had been coming to Andreas with startling news. Lying in her bed at night, or while doing chores alone, this maid would hear tapping from inside the walls and footsteps from the attic. When Andreas would investigate the attic, he wouldn't find any signs that someone had been there. 
It was a large open space with few places to hide. Soon, Andreas became annoyed with the constant paranoia and would start dismissing the maid's concerns. Because of this and the innate spookiness of the situation, the maid quit. In the six months before the main events, other weird stuff started happening, and the family mostly dismissed these things out of hand without reporting them or talking to the authorities. Uh, for example, uh, other people in the family started hearing footsteps and other noises in the house. Uh, they would investigate, as usual, and find nothing. There were other instances when strange, unexplained things happened around the farm. Uh, things started going missing, like one of the two sets of keys to the house. When the family searched the property, the key was nowhere to be found. Something else weird uh, that may have been a sign of something sinister was a newspaper. While this may sound innocuous, the newspaper was from Munich, uh, which no one in the area subscribed to. It could have been a simple mix-up, but when held up to future events, this could have been a sign of someone lurking around the farm. A few days before the incident, the creepiest evidence of someone lurking presented itself. Uh, this was during the winter, the early months of the year, and there had been heavy snowfall around the farm. The Gruber farm was surrounded by dense woods, like I said, and Andreas found something incredibly creepy. A single set of footsteps in the snow emerged from the woods and led to the tool shed outside this, the farmhouse. The lock on the shed had been damaged, not destroyed. Even creepier still, there was no set of footprints leading back to the woods, Whoever had tried to break into the shed was still there. Despite all this crazy stuff, Andreas never went to the police. He told some friends around town, but he never went to the authorities, and there might have been a reason for that, which I will explain later. Uh, the night before the attack, Victoria fled from the farm into the woods after some sort of fight or disturbance or disagreement with someone. We know literally nothing about this, except that maybe the disturbance involved the Gruber's neighbor, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who was previously interested in marrying Victoria, but had been rebutted by her father. Uh, during the first weekend of April, the Gruber farm had several visitors, although no one saw any members of the Gruber family. Uh, first, it was Maria Baumgartner's sister who dropped her off to begin her maid work uh, and then took off back into town. She might very well have been the last person to see the Grubers alive, except for uh, whoever did this. Um, second, Hans and Edward Shirovsky, uh, two coffee salesmen, knocked on the door to sling some coffee, but no one answered. Uh, they went down the road to Schlittenbauer Farm and commented on the absence of the Grubers. This raised a bit of a uh, suspicion, but nothing too red flaggy. Uh, on April 4th, a technician arrived to work on the Gruber's feeding machine and remembered hearing the dog running around in the yard. After waiting for an hour on the Gruber's to come out and meet him, he decided to just get the job done. He worked for another, another four hours on the machine and emerged from the place it was housed, but couldn't hear the dog anymore. As he approached the house, he began hearing the dog barking again, but from inside. Someone had moved it inside the house. Uh, on Sunday morning, the Grubers didn't show up to church, although they were church-going folk. On Monday, when Kazilia didn't show up for school, people started worrying. They formed a search party, and Lorenz Schlittenbauer led a group with his sons to the Gruber farm to investigate. If you hear my dog in the background, uh, that is my dog being an idiot. Okay. Okay, I'm going to pause here and uh, go deal with that. And we're back. Um, let's see. <clears throat> they formed a search party, and Lorenz Schlittenbauer led a group with his sons to the group farm to investigate. I think that's where I left off. Uh, even though he had a key to the barn, he broke down the door and stepped in, but stumbled on something. As he continued in, his son looked on the ground and saw what his father stumbled over. It was a human foot. Here's what police think happened. Four days earlier, death had come to the Gruber farm. Someone had lured four members of the family to the barn, one by one, then smashed them in the head with a blunt instrument several times. Andreas, Victoria, the elder Kazilia, uh, had died instantly, 
while the younger Kazilia didn't have that luxury. The police found her body with the other three in the corner of the barn, covered in straw, but she had pulled chunks of her hair out of her head prior to her death and had died from what they theorized might have been sheer terror along with her wounds. When the killer had dispatched the first four members of the family, they moved into the house where the maid, Maria Baumgartner, and the youngest member of the Gruber family, baby Joseph, were sleeping. The killer murdered Joseph in his crib and Maria in her bed during the night. Uh, when people interviewed people, uh, when police interviewed people in town, several of them said they saw smoke coming from the chimney of the Gruber farm, and someone had made multiple meals in the Gruber kitchen. Whoever committed the crime was familiar with farm work as the animals were fed and the dog was taken care of. When the police searched the barn more closely, they found a mattock, which is sort of a pickaxe tool, in the hayloft. It was the murder weapon which had broken the skulls of the Gruber family. When police investigated the house, they ruled out a robbery since there was a cache of gold and bills in the house, which was undisturbed. This was a crime of passion. The police interviewed hundreds of people and had hardly any leads. There were, however, a few suspects in the case, some of which are more plausible than others. Let's go through some of them. Number one. Victoria's ex-husband, Carl Gabriel. No, they didn't get a divorce. Carl was designated KIA during World War I, but a body was never found. Of course, this doesn't mean much since there were bodies literally everywhere, but it could have been possible. When Carl back, got back home, if he survived, he found something awful. Carl had supposedly died soon after Casilia was born, but Joseph was only two years old. People around town noticed this, and soon, they found out what was going on. Uh, and this is the yucky part. Andreas and Victoria were put on trial for incest. Although, if I were a betting man, I'd say Victoria didn't have much to say in the matter. It was less of a relationship and more of, a, more of an assault. Uh, Carl discovered this, then decided to hide in the walls, attic, and barn, and then killed his whole family. What I don't get is, why didn't he just kill Andreas, who seemed like a terrible guy. Maybe he was suffering from PTSD. Maybe he was otherwise mentally ill. I'm not sure, but the only thing really supporting this theory happened many years after the Hinterkaifeck murders. Some German prisoners of war in Russia during the Second World War told the story of a German-speaking Russian soldier who admitted to murdering the Grubers after releasing them, but this claim could be completely false. Was it Carl? Probably not, but it's, it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, number two, Andreas. He was suffering from the guilt of having an incestuous relationship with his daughter and so decided to kill everyone because he was severely mentally ill. I don't think this one is even remotely correct because why would he kill himself with a blunt instrument? Next. Uh, number three, it was Lorenz Schlittenbauer. I like this one more than the first two, since it was documented that Lorenz was almost married to Victoria. They started a relationship, started courting, but for some reason, Andreas didn't want them seeing each other. Probably the fact that he was a, a very old creep who didn't want any other guys around his daughter and his son uh, slash grandson. Gross. Uh, it is also common knowledge that Lorenz blew the whistle on Andreas's creep behavior with Victoria and started the trial, which ostracized the Grubers. Um, I didn't mention this. Well, I did mention this earlier, but Andreas was not only a creep, but one of the most disliked people in town in general. He was very unpleasant and kept to himself. <clears throat> uh, Lorenz had access to the farm with the key that he had, and he was familiar with farm work. Also, you know, why wouldn't he try to use the key to the barn instead of knocking it down? It seems like maybe he was trying to show off or make uh, believe that he was the hero instead of the villain. He had the right motive and means, but did he have the opportunity? Well, as it turns out, sometime around the night of the murders, Lorenz slept outside of the house, claiming to have spent the night in his barn. Why? I don't know. Could it have been that he could sneak out and do some murder? Perhaps. There's a problem with this, though. 
Lorenz would have had to keep sneaking away to make the meals in the house and take care of the farm animals and stuff like that. And he had his own farm obligations. So I, I don't really think it was Lorenz. Uh, number four, it was a G-dang ghost. Think about it. Someone in the walls or the attic, someone who couldn't be seen, someone who left no evidence, someone with a grudge. Typical ghost behavior. Uh, and then it could have also been a drifter um, who was looking for someplace to stay, but they would have taken the money if it was the drifter, I think. So that's that's not really a possibility either. Uh, in all seriousness, to this day, German authorities are unsure who committed these murders, and I don't think we'll ever have a clear answer. Uh, German university students reopened the cold case and discovered new evidence and came up with a uh, suspect that they think it is, but have withheld information so as not to shame this person's ancestors. Um, so this will always be one of the most frightening, disturbing, and unsolved crimes in German and world history. Well, I think that's about it for the Hinterkaifeck murders, since it's an open-ended story. Sorry that this case was um, a lot shorter and a lot less info, but that's how true crime grows, goes sometimes. Uh, if you like the show, please leave Legends Lore and Larceny a five-star rating and comment on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you have questions, comments, topic suggestions, or corrections for me, you can find the show on socials and via email. Uh, on Instagram, the show is Legends Lore Larceny Pod and Legends LL Pod on X. Please feel free to shoot me an email at legendslorelarcenypod at gmail.com. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes every two weeks. Until the next episode, stay legendary and, you know, call the police if you hear footsteps in your attic. It might or might not be a ghost, but it's better to be safe than sorry. So I'll see you in the next episode. Bye! Bye!